Well, we began uh, our journey through the book of John and then took a little break for the Lenten and Easter season for our um, sermon series on the feast from the book of Leviticus. And now we return to the book of John, picking up where we left off last time. Uh, we finished up chapter four and now we're beginning chapter five. And this morning we'll be looking at verses one through 18. It is John chapter five, verses one through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gates, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a uh, a principle in life that I imagine we all know is true, and it goes something like this. If you work hard, If you put in your best efforts, it will pay off. There could definitely be some setbacks, right? If you're trying to build a business or something like that. But if you're willing to burn the candle at both ends for a season, one day, after some grit, after some determination and a whole lot of hard work, chances are you will be able to stand back and enjoy this thing that you have built. Or if you want to learn an instrument, regardless of how much musical talent you actually possess, if you work really hard at it, you can get good enough at that to where you can be part of the band. And sports is very similar. It doesn't matter your stature or how much physical strength you have. If you work really hard and you practice, you can be part of the team and and you can maybe even get some playing time. Because you get out of something what you put into it. And if you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to be more holy, 
In many ways, the same principle applies. You got to put down the phone and pick up the Bible. You got to give yourself to prayer and to study and to Bible reading. You have to learn what your particular sin patterns are and put them to death. That is true. The Bible commends godly discipline as a means to growth. But what if? What if you feel buried under a sin? And no matter how hard you try, it feels like you just can't move. Or what about when you do overcome something and then it dawns on you that the pride you feel for overcoming it is a whole lot uglier than the thing that you overcame? Or what do you do when you realize that sometimes you love the benefits of holiness more than the one who makes you holy? So whether we're fighting a specific sin on the front end or our wicked hearts on the back end, I don't know about you, but to me, it always seems like sin is lurking. So the question this morning is, how can we rest? How can we rest? In our passage this morning, Jesus returns to Jerusalem again for an unspecified feast. And John does not tell us what this particular feast is, which likely means that it's not important. Uh, It's a narrative vehicle, really, just to get Jesus back down to Jerusalem. And when he arrives, he goes straight to this place called the Pool of Bethesda, which means the House of Mercy. And this place is where a multitude of invalids are laying around hoping to get well. And apparently they believed that an angel would come periodically and he would stir up this pool. And if you happen to be the first person to to get yourself into that pool right after it had been stirred, then you would be blessed with the healing that you so desperately wanted. Now, some of you here this morning noticed that when we read the passage, we skipped from verse 3 to verse 5. Others of you here this morning have the New King James Bible, and you notice that I just skipped over verse 4. Well, what's going on there is that uh, that verse 4 is not included in the earliest and the most reliable manuscripts that we have. Likely what happened is a scribe later on added an explanation into the margin of a scroll explaining why the invalids believed that they could be healed from this pool and then over time that note on the side made its way into uh, the manuscript tradition which is why it shows up in some bibles and not in others so jesus arrives at this place and he walks through the crowd of invalids and just try to imagine this scene there's blind people groping around there's cripples laying in the very same place that they were the last time somebody moved them to that location. There would have been no sanitation at all in this place, and so you can only imagine the smell. And for whatever reason, Jesus chooses one man, and either because he asked someone or through divine knowledge, Jesus knows that this man has been here for a really long time and that he's been crippled for 38 years 
So just picture Jesus walking through this maze of bodies, stepping over them, stepping over over pools of urine. And he goes right up to one particular man and he asks him, do you want to be healed? Which is kind of a bizarre question because everybody there wants to be healed. And so Jesus is either asking a very genuine question or he's asking the question like you would ask a child who says he wants friends that refuses to leave his room. Do you want to have friends? Because if you want friends, you're going to have to leave your room. You're going to have to do something different. See, this man has been trying the same exact thing for 38 years to get his healing. And Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? Because what you're doing is not working. And the man's response is telling. He doesn't even consider another option. His only hope for being healed is somehow getting into that pool. And he thinks that Jesus is going to be the one to help him get into that pool. And so Jesus, who we know from the first chapter of John's gospel, is the word of God. Speaks. And he says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And then we're told that the man was at once healed and he took up his bed and he walked. And just as easily as galaxies came into existence at the spoken word of God, this man's 38 year long struggle is over and he picks up his bed and he walks. And then we discover that not only has Jesus come all the way back to Jerusalem and intentionally chosen to heal this one man out of an entire crowd of desperate and hurting people. He also chose to do so intentionally on the Sabbath. And then we're introduced to the Jews who likely represent the Pharisees. And instead of being totally amazed that this man who had been crippled for 38 years is walking, they're just mad because he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And they want to know, who told you that you could carry your mat on the Sabbath? Who healed you? But the man didn't even know who had healed him because apparently after he was healed, he had attracted such a crowd that Jesus was sort of forced to slip away and avoid the commotion. And so because of that, it sort of makes sense that this man doesn't know who Jesus is. But it is kind of strange that even the man himself does not seem to be rejoicing over what God has done for him. In fact, when the Pharisees ask him who healed him, he seems more concerned about their judgment over him for carrying his mat than he is about rejoicing over what God has done for him. And so he sort of sounds like Adam and Eve in the garden, blaming each other for their sin. He's blaming Jesus for, for healing him, rather than glorifying God for it. So Jesus circles back around to him and finds him in the temple, and he says to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So maybe 
Maybe it was a specific sin that led this man to being crippled in the first place. And Jesus is warning him not to go back to that specific sin. But it seems like John is also making a connection between this man and the Pharisees. Because if you stand back and you look at this whole scene, what, what we see is that there's a lot of people working really, really hard to find salvation through their own work in this passage. All those blind and crippled people struggling in their own strength to somehow get into this superstitious pool. Even the man who Jesus heals doesn't seem to understand that he has been found by the true water of life and the person of Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees are just as crippled as this lame man. They are groping around in the dark, stuck to the mat of their rules. They had 39 extra biblical rules that must be kept, according to them, in order to properly observe the Sabbath. And so the irony of it is, is that they were working really hard to rest on the Sabbath. And here Jesus was. Their true Sabbath rest from God. And instead of falling down at his feet and worship, they wanted to kill him because they did not recognize who he truly was. And just like the older brother, angry at the father for welcoming the prodigal son, because grace just seems so unfair. So what's happening here is Jesus is letting this man know, and he's letting us know that this whole scene from the blind and the lame and the invalids by the pool to the Pharisees, this is what sin looks like. This is what sin does to people. And no matter how hard you work, you can't get out of it on your own, even when you think you have. And we know it's true, don't we? Because we're no different. Now, I think if we're honest, in some ways, we're all still working really hard to save ourselves. And I believe that most of us, by God's grace, we know that salvation is a free gift from God. We know and we trust that our sins are forgiven because Jesus took our place on the cross and that our sin was laid on his shoulders and his perfect righteousness has been given to us. And we know that we are saved by faith alone and nothing can separate us from the love of God. And even though we know that, I wonder, how often do we truly just rest in that reality? Maybe there's some here struggling it's not blindness. We're not literally trapped on a mat, unable to move, but maybe our marriage is distant. We don't know what the other one is really thinking these days, and we're afraid to ask. And when we talk about difficult things, it just ends up in a fight. And so we're just longing to crawl into a pool of a good relationship. Or maybe we do have a sickness 
We find ourselves spending most, if not all, of our time learning about our risks and our long-term chances. And we just want to crawl into a pool of good health. What problem is first and foremost in our lives this morning? What are our hopes? What are our fears? And where is all of our time and energy and effort going towards to try and deal with whatever obstacle is in the way of our problem being solved? What, what pool are we struggling to get into, hoping that it will heal us? Or how many of us have been struggling with the same sin, groping around in the dark for a long time, trying to save ourselves? And maybe like this man here in our story, we've resigned ourselves to it because there's no one to help us get into that pool. There's no magical cure. And so we think to ourselves, this must just be who I am. How many of us can feel just as helpless to get out of our sin as this man felt to get off of his mat? And then at times we can find ourselves being just like the Pharisees too. Sure, we have our struggles. We've resigned ourselves to even though we might feel guilty about. But we also have those areas where we're doing pretty good. And if we're honest, we believe that if everyone else could be like us or think like us, then this world would be a much better place. And if you're anything like me, you tend to go pretty easy on yourself in the areas of weakness and pretty hard on others in the areas of strength. And then even when we do experience healing from Christ... Like the man in our story, we can find ourselves more concerned about what other people think about us carrying our mat than we are rejoicing over all that God has done for us. We want to be accepted by each other more than we want to freely bask in the acceptance and healing of our Father. But Jesus sees all of our striving. Jesus sees all of the ways that we are working hard to save ourselves. And then he sees our weakness. He sees our need. He sees our inability. And he wants us to know that he alone provides the living water that our souls need. He alone is our true Sabbath rest. That's why he says in Matthew, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle. And lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Church, this passage shows us the amazing grace of God. All through the book of John, Jesus has been coming after his children one by one, going out of his way, crisscrossing up and down Israel to be at just the right place, at just the right time, to pour out his grace on the ones who he has chosen. He comes after Peter, James, and John, and Andrew in chapter 1, so they can see and they can behold that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Then he goes down to Jerusalem so that we can see that he is the true temple. He is the true meeting place of God and man. And then he goes to Nicodemus so Nicodemus can understand what it means to be born again. And then he defies all convention, walks right through Samaria so he can save the, uh, the woman at the well. And then he goes up to Galilee so he can meet the royal official and heal his son and confirm his faith. And then he goes back down to Jerusalem to a place that you and I would never want to go. Have you ever seen the uh, bridge in downtown Modesto and all the, the kind of homeless encampments underneath there? And there's just all these shabby tents and there's homeless people, drug addicts, uh, used needles. I'm, I'm not judging by asking this question because I wouldn't want to either, but would you ever think about walking into that place? I, I wouldn't. It would never occur to me. But that's the social equivalent of what Jesus does by walking right into this portico. Because this is what Jesus does. He left the glory of heaven and he comes to this sin-soaked world and he enters all of our filthy lives and he comes up to each one of us and he says, do you want to be healed? And he pours out his grace on us just like he did this man before we even know who he is or what is happening. <laughs> just like we saw last week with Roy Thomas. God pouring his grace on this child before this child even knows who God is or what is happening to him. He pours out his grace on us while we are stuck on whatever superstitious dream that we fixed our hopes on. And Jesus gives us his grace before we even have the faith to receive what he is doing for us. And then he pursues us and then he says, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now that doesn't sound like the gospel. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the reason it doesn't sound like the gospel is because it's not. Jesus is actually in that moment giving this man his law. Jesus is letting him know that his sin will destroy his life. And he's bringing him to a place where he despairs of his own work and his own effort. So that he will come to Jesus and find rest in him and him alone for spiritual healing as well as physical healing. He's letting him know that being a cripple is not his biggest problem. His biggest problem is that he is a sinner under the wrath of a holy God. And Jesus is the one who heals us from that too. You see, under the covenant of Moses, God gave the children of Israel his law. And the law essentially says, do this and live. Sin no more, so nothing worse may happen to you. But have you ever tried to sin no more? We cannot obey the law of God perfectly this side of heaven. 
In fact, the more I discipline myself to get rid of sin, all that happens is I find out that I'm more sinful than I thought I was. I traded struggling with gluttony and self-loathing for struggling with vanity and pride. I can't get away from it. Not that we shouldn't be disciplined. But our sin just backfills whatever efforts we take to be holy. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't take those efforts. That doesn't mean we shouldn't put to death sin in our lives. We should so that nothing worse may happen to us. Sin does destroy our lives. But it is impossible to truly sin no more if, if we think that's going to be the way to find rest. And when God's law comes, it tells us to sin no more. And in so doing, it's telling us the truth, but it's driving us to Christ. God's law is there to make us thirsty for living water and to make us long for true Sabbath rest. And then from that place of rest, the law shows us how we can please our father. Listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism says. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. And this is what the Pharisees did not understand. Their 39 extra Sabbath rules, as burdensome as those rules were, are actually reducing the Sabbath command down to something manageable. Because if all resting is, is going to church twice on Sunday, not watching TV and not going to the store, that is actually much easier than believing that God loves me. And I don't have to do anything except believe it. That is the hardest thing to do. But that's the gospel. Our hearts are crying for something to do so that we can feel right with God under our own strength. Like the Pharisees, we want to be the one who's always working because it feels good. It's satisfying. We earned it. And you get out of something what you put into it. And so when they question Jesus about breaking the Sabbath, listen to what Jesus says. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. He could have said, look, you guys, you've got the Sabbath all wrong. This man was worshiping God by carrying his mat. He wasn't working. But an explanation like that would have just made him seem like another one of the religious leaders with an opinion about what the Sabbath truly was. But instead, Jesus puts himself above the law and equal to God. And the Jews, they understood God as the father of Israel. 
But for God to be Jesus' personal father meant that Jesus was exactly like God, which is exactly what Jesus means here. And the Jews understood that God was always working because he's the one holding the universe together. And Jesus is saying, that's what I do. I hold the universe together. You can trust me. Which is why they wanted to kill him. Because they did not understand grace. Church, the fact that Jesus is always working is the best news ever. Because today we are here and we are either weary and tired from all of our efforts to get our lives on track or to find the right pool to crawl into to relieve our suffering or we're smug and self-righteous. Either way, we need to know that we can rest in the finished work of Jesus. He is the one who is always working. He is the true water of life. He is the true Sabbath rest. And we can finally and fully and completely rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we're so grateful for the good news of grace. That you come into our filthy lives and you walk through all of our sin and shame. And you come to us and you say, do you want to be healed? And all we have to do is receive your grace by faith. Which is a gift in itself. We thank you, Father, that our righteousness is a righteousness that is given to us by Christ alone. And that you are a good and loving and faithful God. We thank you that this is real and that this is true and that it's beyond our wildest dreams. Help us to believe it. Help it to sink into the deepest parts of our heart and our souls. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our uh,